It's great to be back at Grace. Uh, like many of you, and I know there are many stories in the room, uh, many stories on campus. Uh, I've got a long affiliation uh, with you all with Grace Community Church and, and Grace-related ministries, particularly Grace to You. Um, it is through Grace to You, in the, starting in the late 80s, that I really learned the Bible. Um, I've never lived here, but I've been visited here many, many times. Uh, so it's always a joy to come back here. Uh, I was scheduled to be in, in Russia, actually, this week. And I talked to, uh, I was here a couple of weeks ago and talked to Mark uh, Zhekovich, and he asked if I could come down in July. I said, well, I'd love to, but I can't. I'm, I'm booked for the month. And a day later, the Moscow trip, for reasons that are probably obvious to you, got canceled. Um, so I called him up and said, well, I, uh, I can come now. And so here we are. My wife was mad at me, though, because she said, don't take on any more trips. Um, anyway, it's, it's great to be here. I like uh, the Julys here because we're relatively informal. There's no time constraints like we often have. Um, you know, with the, with the shorter time of a talk. So I'm going to take advantage of that. Uh, and by getting through the presentation, uh, but then maybe offering Q&A. Now, Q&A might be a little challenging in here, but we'll, we'll give it a try, uh, depending upon how much time we have left. And of course, anytime you want to get up and leave, uh, you're welcome to. No, no issues there. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, being reminded as we are on each Sunday, each Lord's Day of who you are and desiring to be reminded of who you are and to come to know you more. Uh, Today, we'd like to focus on coming to know you in perhaps a new way or a richer way in your works, the works that are all around us. And we know, Lord, that we can only understand the works uh, that you provide for us uh, that's uh, in, in the category of common grace, we can only come to an understanding of that uh, through your work of redemption in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the grace that has been extended to the lives here in this room, Lord. We ask that you bless our time, that we can, we can be enlarged in our understanding of who you are and, and uh, the magnitude of your works, even in the little things in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I, my assignment today is to address a question that I get often. Um, uh, by the way, those of you that maybe don't know me, my name is Jeff Williams. Um, I'm, I, some, sometimes I think I'm here because I'm an astronaut. Um, but um, it's been affirmed that I'm, that's not the primary reason. I just happen to be one of those um, but hopefully the reason I'm here is because of a testimony, the unique testimony uh, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But anyway, given that job title that I've had for over 25 years, uh, I often get the question in public talks, how can you work in an area like that and be a believer? How can you work in the area of science and be a believer? Um, So that's the question I'd like to at least begin to address today. It's not going to be a sermon. It's not going to even be a Bible study. I'm going to try to illustrate the Christian worldview through some scriptures. Um, But I really want to address this question. So this is kind of a worldview talk. How do we engage in this world? 
Uh, now, a little bit of recent history kind of increases the, uh, maybe the importance of doing this. Um, throughout the 20th century and even to today, the word science and the title scientist carry an authority, a weight of authority that many are not equipped to address. If we hear the term, and we've heard it a lot lately in recent years, science says it's difficult to challenge it. There's a history there, and I want to try to flesh out a little bit of that history. The last couple of years, particularly through the, the COVID circumstances, there, I remind people that there's a little bit of a nick in the armor of the authority of science and scientists. Um, and you here at Grace Community Church were a big part of that over the last several years. By the way, I look forward to the, the film that's coming out later this month uh, to tell that story. Uh, but it put a nick in the army of the authority, the, the presumed authority of science and scientists. And that's good. That, that's a good, it's an opportunity too. It's an opportunity for the gospel. It's an opportunity to address these things that I want to address today. I would like to start out with a scripture. Uh, it's Psalm 111. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 111. I'm going to, in the course of the, the next hour or so, I am going to give a little bit of it, uh, put Psalm 111 in a historical context in a unique role that it has. Historically, it was referred to as the scientist psalm, the scientist psalm, and, and particularly centered on verse 2. Uh, so one of my objectives today is to equip you with this psalm to address this question uh, that we're going to address in terms of science. So let's start out by reading the psalm. And by the way, uh, the punchline there in verse 10 at the very end, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's really the key to this. And I will give you right up front uh, my contention that the fear of the Lord, as you go through and study all of those passages that many of us are familiar with through the Old Testament, is synonymous with faith that's been granted to us by grace. So even getting to the point of of of, of living out or realizing the fear of the Lord is by the grace of God. Very very much and, and very uh, just like the gift of faith is. Back to verse 1, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So this is a setting of believers. Um, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I apologize. I don't have the LSB in front of me. It's Yahweh. It is Yahweh. <laughs> Dr. Chow's in the room, I think, so I had to, I had to say that. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever. 
to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The theme I really would like to pull out today of this verse in terms of addressing the biblical worldview is verse 2, as I said before. If you go back and look at the what the, would be participles in the verse, studied and delighting, those are not commands for us to study the works of God. It's not a command to delight in the works of God. They are characterizing the works. They are characterizing the believers. The works are studied works. From a believer's perspective, we study the works of God. So they're studied works. They're not commanding us to study the works. We are in the process of studying the works of God in a right response to his redemptive work. Um, And we are delighting in the study, right? We are delighting believers. That's the perspective here. Uh, Now, I'm going to try to relate that to practical experience in life, kind of the awe and wonder of space. We'll use that as illustrations. Uh, We're going to consider the works of God in that context. We'll consider the works of God in science. Uh, But I also up front want you to think about your response. Why are you even here? Uh, Why is this topic interesting to you? Why is the awe and wonder of nature interesting to you? It's because we bear the image of God. So keep that in mind too as we go through the hour. One is the objective works of God, his works of creation, his works of sustaining his creation. Sorry. His works of provision and his works of provision are so rich and often we take it for granted. Um, His works of providence in our life. I was in a couple of conversations before talking about God's providential work in our life and how grace has unfolded in our lives individually according to his providential plan. All of that, as I said before, understand, uh, understood through his work of redemption. So that's why Psalm 111 verse 2 is, is so central uh, to this theme that we're talking about. Now let's consider just briefly, and I'm not going to talk about this much, um, but I want to show you some examples of things that capture our attention. I threw in a few uh, images of, uh, or from the Webb Space Telescope, which is the newest telescope which reaches farther into the universe than we've ever reached before. And, of course, we read articles online, and, and everybody has their, their perception, their presuppositions on these things, and you'll hear about exploding galaxies and black holes and all kinds of things, and they present them as fact, but they're just... They're just trying to describe what they don't understand. Uh, you know, this isn't moving. But, but look at it. It, is, it. it invokes our awe and wonder, right? It reflects the glory of God. We know that. That's, a, that's the biblical perspective. Uh, this is deep into space. I think the deeper we look, the more we'll see. Um, and it, we don't really have the ability to comprehend fully infinity, um, but it, it will go on as far as we can see anyway. And it goes the other direction too, right, in scale, in small scale as, as we go down. Here's another example from Webb Space Telescope. Oh, no. Oh, no, where's the IT guys? Did it just go? With, 
just, just went away? That's not good. Oh, here, here comes John. Um, but this gives you a glimpse. This is what I want to talk about. Um, we respond. We see these things, and they are amazing to us uh, for lots of different reasons. Uh, but also reflect on why it is amazing. It's because we bear the image of God. So we have elements of God's character in our nature that has a, an appreciation uh, for the things that we see. And the things that we see are amazing objectively in and of themselves. I'm going to talk in a few minutes about the order of the things that we see, a mathematical order, a physical order, a chemical order, an optical order. The ordering of God's creation is amazing. Uh, We can only uh, gain the provision from his creation because of that ordering. So that's going to be a theme we're going to... Okay. It's the, 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 uh, the promise of an IT guy. I'll be right back. See? <laughs> you have a great sense of humor, and I hope he does too. Ah, <laughs> uh, so where were we? Uh, while we're waiting here, let me talk a little bit about that concept of ordering. God creates all things, right? We, we know that. Uh, but he also sustains all things. I'm going to get into that a little bit later. I'm going to get ahead of myself here because I don't want to keep us going on track. That way I can go through the slides a little quicker. But he sustains all things too. And we know from scriptures, from first, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, that it is Christ who creates all things and sustains all things by the word of his power. Um, there is provision in creation that goes far beyond what we typically think of as provision. Classically, we think of the word provision. Oh, yay. Thank you, John. All right, let's get back on script here. So just a couple more. And by the way, these are, they fascinate us. They're pleasing to the eye. There's a harmony of color here, right? Um, And many of you uh, are involved in music. You know what harmony in music is as opposed to dissonance. Harmony is pleasing to the ear. Dissonance is not. It's it's objective. uh, uh, Or um, uh, we we reject it, if you will. Uh, So even the sense of harmony, both in sight and color, in pattern, in, um, in, in tone, is a reflection of two things. One is order. Dissonance would be disorder. Uh, but also, bearing the image of God, it is what is pleasing to us. And we can see examples here. Look at that. It looks like a big butterfly, right? Uh, it, is, it is absolutely amazing. I just wanted to throw those out there, uh, but... Uh, because they're relatively new, and a lot of people, I get a lot of questions on those things. I usually don't spend a lot of time talking about the deep space stuff. I come a little bit closer to home, uh, but this is a reflection of Psalm 19, right? Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and it's not only the heavens. Everything, if we look at his works, um, declare his glory, reflect his glory. A little bit closer to home, space shuttle. Anybody here see a space shuttle launch? 
Oh, quite a few of you. It was amazing, right? Um, you could get no closer than three miles away at launch. So it took 15 seconds for the sound energy to get to you. So you would see it uh, on time. You'd see the plume from the main engines light off six seconds prior to lift off, and then the solid rocket boosters would, boosters would light off. Um, and then you would see it, and you'd see it rise, and you'd see the, 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 the plume uh, stretch out on both sides. And then 15 seconds later, the energy hit you, and it shook your whole body. I mean, it was very powerful, very impressive. Um, for some of you, this is a refresher. Weight on the launch pad about four million pounds. It lifted off with a thrust of seven and a half million pounds of thrust. So a lot of power and energy to get up uh, the orbiter. When you got to orbit, was uh, up on the order of two hundred and forty thousand pounds, rough give or take. It would typically land about two hundred thousand pounds. So it took a lot of energy to get to orbit. It took less than nine minutes to get to orbit. Uh, and you were going 17,500 miles an hour after that nine minutes. And this was your perspective here, seeing the earth. And thankfully, I like, I like coming back to Grace Church because I get no flat earth questions here. So. <laughs> but think about that. Think about the technology that's all around us. Think about the ability of mankind to extract from God's provisioning all of the materials uh, and to develop it and to utilize it uh, and develop it into capability and make life better. Uh, in this case, to take lots of different kinds of metals and other kinds of elements and, and put them together and then do the engineering to get everything just the right size so you, you, you reduce the weight and then you, uh, you have a knowledge of the chemical uh, response, the chemical ordering of fuels and oxidizers and you mix it together and you produce... Seven and a half million pounds of thrust with seven people on board. Uh, that's a lot of energy. And we know from experience that it's a risky um, thing to do, right? So you, you want to put it together. You want to control it. You want it to work. Um, but it brings a lot of capability. And like I said, after that nine minutes, you're going 17,500 miles an hour, uh, which is precisely what you need to, to, to go in terms of speed to be in Earth orbit at roughly 250 to 300 miles above the surface of the earth. And that precision is a demonstration of the ordering of God's creative work. Um, It's because of what we call natural laws, right? Newton's laws and other laws that all of this works. Uh, So it exists, those laws exist, uh, the elements exist, uh, the chemistry exists, the structural integrity exists. Uh, but also man's bearing the image of God has the capability to put it all together. Another illustration I like to have, uh, show is this smartphone that most of us have in our pocket. Uh, some of you heard me ask this before. What's the basic element in this? The basic element. Uh, there's a place just up north in, uh, near San Francisco. It's called Silicon Valley. Why is it called Silicon Valley? Because computer chips are made out of silica, right? What is silica? Sand, sand. So think about it. Think from the basic element of sand, which there's plenty of everywhere, and you've got beaches not too far away from here, right? So you can get all the sand you want. 
Uh, start out with sand, and you develop the capability, uh, right or wrong, for good and for evil, uh, to transmit information, to access information uh, around the world almost instantaneously. Uh, and you, that's demonstrated every time we use our charge card, for example. And if you got it set up, you get a ding in your thing and, and your phone, and, and, uh, and it doesn't matter where in the world you are. Uh, uh, that's amazing. Two things. God's provision that he placed in his creative work and mankind's ability to extract from that provision. And that's not only silica. It goes all the way to the energy that's in God's ordered creative work that we're able to harness uh, through all of the radio signals, all of the signals in different uh, formats, different wavelengths that go around the world to make that virtually instantaneous. There's a quote I like to read. This is, again, related to space, and I'll just read it for you here. From the rocket, we shall see the huge sphere of the planet Earth like phases of the moon. We shall see how the sphere rotates and how within a few hours it shows all its sides successively. And we shall observe various points on the surface of the Earth for several minutes and from different sides very closely. This picture is so majestic, attractive, and infinitely varied that I wish with all my soul that you and I could see it. That was written in 1911. Uh, I've spent many, many trips in Russia, accumulating about six years or so of time, uh, 60 trips perhaps. And I would live and work in a place called the Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center, which is where the Russian cosmonauts have historically trained a formerly secret base. That's where we lived and worked there. And there was a a regional train that went into Moscow. Um, and the train platform there right outside of Star City, as we like to call it, as, as they call it, uh, was called the Tsiolkovsky platform, named after Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who was a theorist. And he envisioned uh, doing what we do and what we take for granted in 1911. Why could he do that? Because he understood what had been discovered and developed in the context of natural laws, the laws of nature, Uh, A lot of people think it's the ordering of God's creation. And because he was growing to understand that, in theory, he he could conceive putting the materials together, forming a rocket, putting somebody on board, and launching them into orbit uh, in 1911. So that gives testimony to exactly what I'm talking about, the ordering of God's creation and mankind's ability. Here's another one a little more familiar. Using material ferried up, by rockets, it would be possible to construct a space station in orbit. The station could be provided with living quarters, laboratories, and everything needed for the comfort of its crew who would be relieved and provisioned by a regular rocket service. Arthur C. Clarke in 1945, before we were launching rockets. It was in the days of experimenting with rockets, um, early days uh, developing the technology, But he envisioned exactly what I've experienced over the last 25 years. This is the International Space Station, as envisioned historically, first in science fiction and then then realized uh, in practice. The space station is an amazing story in and of itself. We launched first element in 1998. We finished the assembly in 2010. It continues to fly um, it, and right now, we've just gained an uh, agreement among the International Partnership to extend it out to 2030. We launched 
Expedition 1 in the uh, fall of 2000. So we're going on 23 years of continuous human presence in space, uh, building it one piece at a time uh, over almost 40 space shuttle flights and 40 Russian rocket launches uh, to put it up piece by piece. If you could, what you see on the screen, if you could lay it on the ground, it would be bigger than a football field. If you could put it on a scale, it would weigh um, close to a million pounds. Uh, So I I contend that it's the biggest technological achievement of mankind in all of history. Um, I don't hear that too often, but that's that's my contention. But it's a great demonstration of what I'm talking about. The ordering of God's creative work and our ability to extract from that order. Um, and I could hit, could add, and I, I'll just mention, this is also a very unique story, which maybe we'll save for another day in terms of geopolitics. Russia is a primary partner with us, along with Japan, the European Space Agency, and Canada. Uh, it, it only came to pass to be approved in the 90s because of the fall of the Soviet Union. And the proposal to partner with Russia, uh, not for space exploration, but because of nonproliferation of nuclear and chemical weapon systems. That was our interest. That's a story for another day uh, to talk about, but in the providence of God. Uh, that's another backstory for me personally. I started out in the Cold War in West Germany um, and, and went through all of this all the time in Russia, former enemies, um, and now just to, to give you another little personal perspective, as of going on three years ago, some of you know this, I moved up to a, a Russian-speaking immigrant community in Washington State that has a worldwide reach for the gospel, very similar to what Grace to You does through uh, Grace Community Church. In fact, we are parallel with, with you all here. So I'll throw that out there just kind of as an aside too. An amazing culmination for me personally um, of a career with all of these elements in it um, uh, in, in God's providential work, his work of, of providence. Back to the space station, orbiting the earth every 90 minutes. Uh, it's been orbiting the earth, as I said, since 1998, first uh, crew in 2000. Here's the view uh, during the night side of the earth. Sometimes I get asked, why don't, why don't you see stars in there? Well, when the sun is shining, you don't see stars. But when you're on the night side of the earth, when the sun is masked by the earth, then the star field is just absolutely incredible. Uh, you can see the, the, uh, the, the globe of the earth in the lower part and the, the gold arc there is the atmosphere of the earth, which is our life support system, a major part of the provision of God for us. Here's the, the view out the window during the daytime. So every 90 minutes you get a day cycle and a night cycle. Uh, one of the highlights personally is to go outside and to do a spacewalk. Um, we have to duplicate everything to support life in the space station. We also have to duplicate it in a space suit to go outside. And when we do a spacewalk, we go outside for uh, six and a half or seven hours. I call it the ultimate skydive. To be able to hang on the outside there and uh, orbit the earth every 90 minutes, as I said. And and by the way, we're inclined to the equator 51.6 degrees. So if you imagine the sphere of the earth, equator here, now you go up 51.6 degrees for the plane of the orbit, 
Yeah, that means uh, every time you, you orbit the earth, you cross the equator, 51.6 north latitude, cross the equator, 51.6 south latitude. So you get to see the entire globe of the earth except for the North Pole and South Pole regions. Um, and every time you orbit, the earth rotates, right? Once every 24 hours, so it rotates. So you cross the equator roughly 1,500 miles to the west of the previous crossing. So it's an amazing vantage point in which to study the earth. Some of you know I'm, I'm known for all the photography I took. The reason I took the photography is I wanted to capture uh, the view of God's creative work on the surface of the planet, which we call home, which is our habitation, from this vantage point to, to share with those on earth. That was my motivation. One of the favorite places to, to photograph is here. So here in this picture, you can see, hopefully it's still presenting, yes. Uh, you can see the entire life of Christ here. Uh, the Middle East, the Dead Sea right in the center, the Jordan River Valley going up and to the right. Uh, off to the upper left is the, the Nile River Delta and the Sinai Peninsula. So the entire life of Christ here you see from our vantage point. As I said earlier, we can only comprehend and understand the works of God in creation and provision and sustaining his creation through the lens of his work of redemption because it grants us by grace the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of understanding as we know from the scriptures. So we can only comprehend it that way. So the conflict that I we're trying to address today is not a conflict between science and the Bible. The conflict comes in in the presuppositions going into your science. So it's a philosophical conflict. Two categories. There's a God who's revealed himself. There is no God, and I have to explain the existence of everything by chance over time. That's the, that's the basic core. That's where the conflict is. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a few minutes. As I uh, talked about earlier, these very familiar verses to us, Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, and he is eternal before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things are sustained by him, his sustaining power. By the way, there are four fundamental forces in nature that science will acknowledge. One of them we know very well, uh, because if we violate it, we get hurt or worse. Gravity, gravity, right? Uh, we experience what we call 1G here, one gravity. On, on the moon, it's one-sixth of that. On Mars, it's about one-fifth of that. We couldn't survive on Jupiter or Saturn. Even be, uh, Obviously, we don't have the atmosphere there, but the gravity would crush us immediately. Uh, so gravi- everything has a gravitational pull. The moon has a gravitational pull. That's why it stays in orbit around the Earth. It doesn't just go off into space. That's why we stay in orbit around the sun. So gravity is, a, is central to understanding the ordered universe. Uh, the second natural force that uh, science acknowledges is electromagnetic force. Um, and we experience that as well. You know, we every, we've all played with magnets. And an electric motor has electromagnetic forces in it. Um, th- there's many other things that have electromagnetic forces. The, the other two forces in nature, fundamental forces, and most <clears throat> aren't that familiar with, would be the, um, called the strong and the weak force, and it's at the atomic level. But basically, it's the forces that, that are demonstrated that hold atoms together. When you think about it, you play with two magnets. You put a positive against positive. What do they do? They repel, Right. 
Well, what's in the core of, a, of an atom? You got electrons in orbit around it. On the core, you have what? Protons and neutrons. A proton is charged how? Positive, right? So how can an atom stay together if it's made up of multiple protons? Why don't they just blow up? Uh, it's a, there's a force there that keeps them together. And I don't want to go into nuances of the strong and weak forces, but those are four fundamental forces acknowledged by science. Gravity, electromagnetic force, strong and weak, atomic force. I can assure you, nobody understands any of them, why they work. (laughs) Science can't explain it. Science only can find it and acknowledge it and measure it and... Newton, who we'll talk about in a second, came up with F equals MA, force equals the mass times acceleration, uh, which is related to gravity. It's his laws of gravitational pull uh, is precise. And he was able to, through experimentation, come up with a mathematical equation to describe it. So all of those forces can be described. They can be described mathematically, but nobody, nobody knows why they work. What's the biblical worldview? He sustains his creation, right? It's a sustaining work. That's how we would explain that. Uh, when I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have, have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Uh, science properly approached is a humbling endeavor. It, it is uh, a, a scientist should approach the study with humility, recognizing that we, we fall short in our understanding, right? That's reflected here in this verse. That's a biblical worldview. That God has provisioned his creative work for our good, which is the basis of all technology development, engineering, and whatnot. But it is a humbling thing. And if we mess it up, it, can, it will kill us in a practical level, Right? Um, and then I threw in Genesis 1. This is, this is central. This is fundamental. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. I've talked about that already. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Uh, science, rightly understood, is a component of subduing the earth and having dominion. It's the dominion mandate. That's, science properly understood through a biblical worldview is, is just that. So, we in the world of science and engineering and technology can see it as a calling, right? A calling, a component of uh, the dominion mandate given in Genesis 1. Science means knowledge. It, in, um, from 1 Timothy 6, it's used uh, so-called knowledge. You, you're familiar with that verse. We'll put it up here in a, in a bit. And I think it's the King James that translates it science. Science just means knowledge. So scientific endeavor is the pursuit of knowledge. It's answering the call, uh, I contend, uh, to subdue the earth and have dominion. Scientific endeavor is simply the pursuit of that knowledge, understanding. What's the beginning of knowledge? What's the beginning of understanding? The fear of the Lord. That's the, the biblical worldview. Uh, in, the, in the classic realm, and I want to talk a little bit about, about the age of science or the scientific revolution. 
Uh, I mentioned Newton already. Uh, he's an example of that age. They, they had presuppositions going into their science, and I want to introduce you to them. One was that there was a rationality to God's creative work. It was ordered, and I've used that word multiple times already. I used as an example the mathematical order. Math is an amazing thing. When, when I was in elementary school, I became interested in math, and it kind of drove me through school because you could take an equation and describe what, what you saw in the real world. Um, and my interest in that only grew. And you get into engineering, you get into calculus, and you, you, you can describe and predict per- perfectly almost or close to perfect, not exactly perfect, with some error, uh, the, the ordering of things, physical things, the throwing of a baseball. The, the, and I was in the Army, so the firing of a mortar shell. Uh, and predicting where it's going to land just based on the the direction you sent it, um, the speed it was sent, and then the drag along the way. Uh, There was a mathematical ordering. Uh, I mentioned chemical ordering. The periodic table is a demonstration of that. How can the periodic table, which describes all the basic elements that we know, and historically it has grown in size, how can it be so precise with round numbers? the atomic number, one, two, three, four, et cetera. Um, it's, a, it's a demonstration of the ordering of God's work of creation. Physics, um, optics. I mentioned optics before. How can we take a piece of glass and in a predictable way uh, shape it very precisely and get perfect focus? Um, we can appreciate that if we wear corrective lenses, right, to bring things into focus. We, if Some of you might remember the Hubble Space Telescope. When it was launched, it was perfectly out of focus <laughs> because of some error in, in, a, in an engineering calculation. But after they realized that it wasn't going to focus and they went back and looked at the numbers, they realized exactly how out of focus it was, and they produced a corrective lens, and sent it up there on a space shuttle and a crew, and they went out on a spacewalk and put that corrective lens in Hubble, and it was perfectly in focus. So a very predictable demonstration of God's ordering of creation. And those of you that don't like science, don't like math, I mentioned before, music is another example. There's a mathematical ordering in music um, that puts it all together. Uh, harmony, octaves, all of that. And I'm not a musician, but... Um, but all of that is a demonstration of God's mathematical ordering. So that was the first presupposition uh, in classic science. There's an order in creation. It's rational. The second presupposition is it's precise, and I've talked about that already. I contend that God's creative work is infinitely precise. We're only limited by our ability to measure it. And if you look at the history of technology development, um, the the advancement in technology is directly proportional to our ability to measure things like distance, weight, or mass, Um, uh, time. Time has been very critical to measure, uh, to be able to measure. Right now, we take for granted our our little nav software and our smartphones and whatnot, Uh, GPS, we take it for granted. It's only all possible because we have all of the whole world system synchronized at a a very high level of precision in time. If it was out of sync in time, it wouldn't work at all. 
uh, and it wasn't that many years ago when we didn't have it because we didn't have that, uh, that ability to measure time with that precision and coordinate all of the elements around the world. So order, precision, and then the third presupposition was what uh, they call a contingency, and that may be less obvious to you. But basically what it means is we can look at something, and the laws that govern that something are not written on the something. They're not obvious, right? The, the, the laws of nature are not obvious to us. Uh, they are imposed on nature. It's, they're not intrinsic to nature. In other words, they have to, we have to do some work to go figure them out, to discover them. And that's what science is all about. Um, there was an order. It was precise. But we have to go experiment. We have to go observe. We have to go come up with hypotheses. We have to test our hypothesis through experimentation. We, we find out our hypothesis was wrong. So we adjust it. We go back and do another experiment. And gradually, we converge on, say, a mathematical equation that describes what we're looking at. Um, that's what I mean by contingent. Um, that's why science is so important. That was the, the, those were the presuppositions going into classic science in the, the, I'd say, the 16th and 17th and into the 18th century, what we call the, the, uh, the scientific revolution. Um, I want to make sure I'm seeing what you're seeing. Um, I love, I'll, I'll point out Hebrews 1.3. He upholds the universe, which is parallel, as I said before, with Colossians 1. That word upholds not only has the idea of, of holding together uh, to sustaining over a period of time, but it has a, an element in its meaning uh, of for a purpose, heading toward an end, uh, which I love, Right? It's heading toward the culmination of all things. You could say that his ordered universe, that is it being upheld for a purpose through God's providential work in the unfolding of time uh, uh, for the end, for when he comes, comes again. So I love that little element of that. So it, it, again, even science, we're, we're, uh, we approach it uh, by extracting what God has given to us subduing and having dominion, but it's for, it's, it's with the ultimate purpose in mind, in, in view. Again, bearing his image, be fruitful, multiply, subdue, and have dominion. Here's an example of what we can see from our vantage point of the space station. So you see the globe of the earth, and then you see evidence of electromagnetic forces, right? This is the, the aurora that some of us have seen, perhaps, if you've gone up north and, and uh, you were fortunate enough to see it on a, on a cloudless night. Uh, this is a, a, an example of that from our vantage point of the space station. Um, we have the interaction of the, the atmosphere, the upper parts of the atmosphere with the magnetic field of the earth, um, pleasing to the eye. Another example of uh, just a site we can see, which is beautiful. Uh, this is uh, an oblique view of the horizon with the reflective sun's energy off the, off the ocean in different layers of clouds. You see an order, a pattern there. It's pleasing to the eye, I would contend for most of you anyway, if not all of you. Um, so, and it, it reflects 
the elements that I've been talking about. Or this one. I love this picture because it's rarely seen. It can be seen, has been seen from the surface of the planet, but not very often. And rarely is seen from orbit as well. But it's looking up over the North Pole in the summertime when we're on the night side of the Earth, but the sun is is backlighting the atmosphere over the North Pole. And we see this very unique pattern. They're called noctilucent clouds. Uh, and they're higher than the, the visible weather systems that we see. And the theory is, is that they're ice crystals that have been carried way up into the, the jet stream and even above what we would consider the jet stream. But it results in this, in this beautiful pattern. Again, ordered pattern. Pleasing to the eye. Invokes our curiosity, invokes our wonder. Uh, so we see all the elements that I've been talking about here, objectively looking at it and, and our response. Noctilucent clouds, very fascinating. Or back on the surface, uh, coral reefs around the Bahamas to the right of center. That's the Florida Peninsula coming down from the top center. There you can see the Florida Keys sweeping. The island in the foreground is Cuba. And a close-up view of the, of, the, of the biggest reef in the Bahamas is right here. Again, we see a pattern. There's an ordering in pattern and color. Uh, it's pleasing to the eye. Uh, that's why nature draws our attention, right? And it reflects the glory of God. We know that. Or a, a glacier, and this one's in northern Pakistan. And I've got a whole big collection of each of these categories uh, to illustrate uh, these things that we've been pointing out. Or sand dunes. Sand dunes are among my favorite in terms of demonstrating a mathematical repeating order caused by just grains of sand over time with prevailing winds. And the fact that it forms over time this repeating pattern, both in large scale and small scale, is a clear demonstration of the ordering of God's creative work. And this is my favorite to demonstrate that. Notice the orthogonal lines. Notice the large-scale repeating pattern and the small-scale repeating pattern. It doesn't look natural, if you will. It looks like it's been, you know, uh, formulated with the artwork of, of man, perhaps, because it's so ordered, so mathematically ordered. But it's on a large scale, just sand dunes, as I recall, in the Sahara Desert. Uh, clear demonstration of the mathematical ordering, the physical ordering, of God's creative work. Let's see. Okay, the age of science. If you go back, and these names are very familiar to you, if you've gone through physics and other courses in in high school and certainly in in college, Kepler in astronomy. Um, Kepler discovered that the orbits of planets are not circular. They can be elliptical. So there's a little geometry in that as well which is ordering. So uh, he's known for, for discovering the elliptical nature of, of orbits, which explained an error that he kept observing. The, the, the orbit of Mars around the Earth, I think it was Mars, was eight minutes wrong in terms of his prediction. It was, always, it was either eight minutes late or early, I can't remember. And he couldn't figure it out, and he kept going back, kept going back because of the contingency of nature. That was his presupposition kept going back, and he finally figured out, ah, it's not a circle. It's an ellipse. It's slightly out of circle. It's an ellipse. And that explained it. He came up with a mathematical equation, and that's why he's known for his work in astronomy and specifically orbits. 
or oh, let me go back here, or boil uh, for chemistry, or Isaac Newton we've talked about, or Faraday in electromagnetics. And if you did any electrical engineering, you heard those names, particularly Faraday. Louis Pasteur, we buy pasteurized milk every day, his work in biology, and James Clerk Maxwell. The, all of these guys, and you don't read these this in the textbook because it's been scrubbed out of the textbooks, they were all believers first. They were all theologians first. They were all driven by their theology. Uh, science was their calling, and they saw it that way. And they entered their science with those presuppositions that I talked about. Um, it, this came largely out of the, uh, you, could, you could attribute it to the Reformation. These guys were in uh, England and Scotland primarily, so you could say it came out of primarily the English Reformation. But that's what drove them. They were theologians first. They were driven by their faith, and they presupposed this ordering of the universe and that it was rational and that it was intelligible, and they could discover it, the intelligence, the order, um, and uh, it was their duty to do so. It was answering the call that God had given them. That's true with all these guys, and they've got some wonderful, wonderful writings. Kepler for example, in a letter to a friend, uh, and he was, as I recall, 24 years old or something like that in 1595. He wrote this letter to a friend. He said, I wanted to become a theologian for a long time. I was unhappy. So you can only presume what that meant. You know, he was studying maybe academics, but he really wanted to know the Bible more. And he was unhappy in that state of not knowing the Bible, not understanding, not, not having that worldview. But since he says now, this was after the fact that he had, the, the Lord had really opened up his understanding of the world around him through the Scripture. He had understand, or, or, or studied, rather, uh, the God who had revealed himself in Scripture. And he says, now behold, God is praised by my work even in astronomy. That's a great testimony to all of us. Whatever we do in life, we should do it understanding it as a calling in our life, no matter what it is, as long as it's biblically legitimate, right? Um, But it is our duty to fulfill that calling, right? And we do it for the glory of God. It is, God should be given testimony by our work, whether it's uh, an engineer, administrative assistant, a, a scientist, a carpenter, an electrician. God should be glorified in our work. We should be a witness to God in our work. We don't have to be in, quote-unquote, full-time ministry to be satisfying that requirement in life. Our calling as a husband and wife, our calling as a parent, frankly, our calling as a child, honoring our mother and father, is a fulfillment It should be seen as a fulfilling of the calling before God. And Kepler saw it that way. God is praised by my work, even in astronomy. A prayer that was found later, if I have been enticed into brashness by the wonderful beauty of your works, you could say pridefulness, or if I've loved my own glory among men while advancing in work destined for thy glory, gently and mercifully pardon me, and finally designed graciously to cause that these demonstrations 
may lead to the glory and to the salvation of souls and nowhere to be an obstacle to that. Amen. That should be the prayer of all of us, right? As we fulfill our callings in life, it should be a witness to God. It should be a means to plant the seed of the Word of God uh, for the end of the salvation of souls and even just as significantly not to impede that salvation, not to compromise our witness to others um, and thereby prevent them from, from considering the gospel. That was the prayer of Kepler. James Clerk Maxwell, wonderful story, and I'll, uh, and, and I'll accelerate here in a little bit, but I got I to gotta tell this story too. Um, he was a very young age, and also in his mid-20s, as I recall. Uh, he was a professor at Cambridge already. Um, he was charged to design and construct the Cavendish Laboratory, which still exists, carved in the heavy wooden doors of the laboratory's entrance is Psalm 111, verse 2. So it was in this age that it was known as the scientist psalm. Great are the works of Yahweh, studied by all who delight in them. So these scientists saw them as studied works. It was their calling, right? And they delighted in the study of those works. They were delighting scientists. A written prayer found after his death, Almighty God who created man in thine own image and made him a living soul that he might seek after thee and have dominion over thy creatures. Teach us to study the works of thy hands, that we may subdue the earth to our use and strengthen the reason for thy service, and so to receive thy blessed word, that we may believe on him whom thou hast sent to give us the knowledge of salvation and the remission of sins, all of which we ask in the name of the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. That should be our prayer, right? That our witness in life and the answering of our calling um, give testimony to God and to live in submission to him in that, in that calling. I would have another story on this picture, but I'm not going to go there uh, in the interest of time. So why do we have this perception then of, of the conflict um, between science and the Bible? Why is there so much hostility and we've seen this, right? We see a hostility toward particularly the Christian faith, religion in general, but the Christian faith in particular that comes from the world of science. Uh, where did it come from and how did we, we get here? I'll throw out a few names. Some of these are familiar to you. And don't apologize for all the, the words, but I mainly will summarize the influence of some names and I'll leave this as homework for you. You can go research these names. James Hutton basically was one of the key figures in the 1700s to introduce the idea of long ages of the earth. Uh, he was a deist, and I'll let you research what, what that was. By the way, I threw in there largely immoral. I don't think he ever got married, but he was a womanizer. He abused alcohol. Uh, he did some other things. Um, he thought religion was contrived. So he promoted this idea of millions of years, continuous evolution, he suggested. He was friends with Erasmus Darwin, who was Charles Darwin's grandfather. So Charles Darwin didn't have much original in his thinking, although it's attributed to him. 
it was alive long before even he existed. And his grandfather was a great influence, a big influence on his life. The year that Hutton died, another man was born by the name of Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell is known to have popularized many of the ideas from Hutton. He was a geologist. He popularized the theory of uniformitarianism, which is a long ages, you know, that the Grand Canyon was formed by tens of millions of years of erosion uh, from the Colorado River, for example. Uh, all of that was used to indirectly, they didn't directly attack the Bible. You can imagine in those years, it was not um, socially acceptable to directly attack the Bible. The Bible dominated culture in those days. So their, their strategy was to indirectly attack the Bible, not attack it directly, but start introducing this concept of what we call science to, to be contrary to the Bible and then indirectly undermine it. And that's, that was the whole idea of uniformitarianism, undermine the first 11 chapters, specifically the flood, the flood account. Charles Lyell was a friend of uh, uh, Charles Darwin, he, he encouraged him to publish his Origins of the Species book. Uh, Huxley, by the way, and a bunch of others, there's an assortment of uh, Huxley's closest inner circle uh, that met for decades, I think, uh, periodically and, and talked through philosophy of life and, and these things specifically. He became known as Darwin's bulldog. He was dubbed Evolution's High Priest. He was antagonistic to the Christian faith specifically. He didn't really believe the science, the so-called science of Darwin's theories, but they were a convenient instrument to use for his propaganda purposes. And he was what really the one who, uh, who propagated Darwin's theories. Darwin wasn't that bold in and of himself in the public setting, but Huxley and others uh, really drove that across the the, um, the Western world anyway. One of his major accomplishments was getting evolution, the category evolution, to be uh, included in the world of science as a category of science, even though it had no scientific evidence. And John Dewey's kind of a, it's not primarily on the, the, the thread I want to go to today, but I, I do include it because he's known as the father of the American education system. He was a socialist in his philosophy. He was very anti-Christianity. He wanted to secularize the American culture. So he is key in terms of what we see today uh, in in the education system and the culture across America. Uh, So that's the reason I threw that in. There's another thread, though, that I'd like to talk about that's not as well known. Um, and these guys were greatly influenced by Huxley and others. And, and they're the ones that recent history uh, shows that they were kind of a key element in the popularizing of what is called the conflict thesis, the, that the Christianity and science have always been at war with each other. So Draper was an American. I think if I remember right, Andrew, or they're both Americans, but White, Andrew White was an immigrant from England, as I recall. One of them immigrated from England. They were American scientists and educators, uh, and they were very influenced and and friends with Thomas Huxley and others in those circle around Huxley that I referenced earlier. 
Draper published a book in 1874 entitled A History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science. And we've heard these terms, the progressive power of science as opposed to the regressive nature of religion or Christianity specifically. So he, that was his thesis, that science was always held back by religion or by the Christian faith in particular. White was the founding president of Cornell University. And when they found Cornell, he and, and a guy by the name of Cornell founded it. Uh, he put in the charter that Cornell would be an asylum for science where truth shall be sought for truth's sake, not stretched or cut exactly to fit revealed religion. So Cornell was set up to be to throw religion out of the, the conversation uh, from the start and start out with this, this different set of philosophical presuppositions. White published a, a book, and it was a big two-volume, 800 pages, I, as I recall, A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom, with that similar thesis, that Christianity had always been at war with science. Uh, now, it was soon after that that in the academic world, as they started looking at these purported works of history, that the academic world concluded that this is not legitimate history. Much of the detail in this was taken out of context or fabricated or skewed to support their thesis. It was revisioned, re- revised, revisionist history. That was in the academic world. But it was popularized because uh, White in particular was very aggressive in his public speaking, and he was very popular in the circuit uh, in America to go around speaking on these themes. So still to this day, in the popular mind, uh, people think that there's a conflict between science and the Scripture. I call it the most successful propaganda campaign in modern history. In the 20th century, from 1950 through the 1980s, more work was done in the academic history world, the history of science. In fact, the whole discipline of the history of science really developed in the latter part of the 20th century, and it just substantiated all of that, that this is all fabrication, it's not legitimate. In fact, uh, science as we know it, modern science, really came to be because of the Christian worldview that drove those scientists that we talked about and others from the age of science. Um, So uh, trying to summarize this, the theory of evolution became the fact of evolution. And many of us in the room experienced that, right? When I was a kid, theory was used all the time. It's not used anymore. It's just presumed as fact. The church was not equipped to answer the assumed authority of science. That's still our challenge, right? I talked about that in the beginning. There's still an authority there that we're not largely equipped to address. But there's a chink in the armor. And if we can learn a little bit of this history, that gives us even more um, uh, material, more understanding to challenge that presumed authority. We need to equip ourselves. Remember, the first 11 books of the Bible, first 11 chapters of the Bible, rather, uh, are key or foundational for the rest of the Bible. If you undermine that, all, all of God's redemptive work is undermined. The Bible's pushed out of education. We see that in the public square. The Bible's authority was eclipsed by the authority of human reason. 
the church weakened in its power to be salt and light. And, and it's pretty well documented. There were early Christian leaders, or say early 20th century, that we would say when we read them, we'd say, well, they kind of compromised the view because of this weight of authority that they were ill-equipped to challenge. And the Christian faith, as a result, lost its public commitment, began to retreat to private individual belief. That's why, frankly, I'm so thankful for what's going on here, and particularly um, over the, the hill at the university with the focus on biblical worldview and the, and the focus... Yeah, there's an example of electromagnetic dissonance. <laughs> I'm going to try to close this so we don't have any more of those kinds of things here. Um, Job 28, I, I don't have time to go into it, but Job 28 is a powerful chapter. It's a powerful chapter. I'll give it to you as homework. The first half of the chapter acknowledges two things. One is that God has provisioned his creation. Right? And he uses the illustration of mining operations and getting uh, ore and, and resources out of mines and man's ability to do so. Uh, it's a fascinating chapter, the first half. But the, right in the middle of the chapter, it says, but where can wisdom be found? True wisdom, although we're given all this ability and the, the ability to extract from this provision, not only the material provision, but the ordering of that provision, the mathematical ordering, the physical ordering, chemical ordering, all of that. Uh, but still there's something that is out of our reach. We don't have the ability to attain it or achieve it. And that is true biblical wisdom. We know about it. it, it, it the, the chapter says, the latter half says, we've heard a rumor of it. So we're aware of it, but it's unattainable. It's beyond our reach. And it ends, uh, chapter 28 of Job, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Same phrase, same concept, granted to us uh, by grace. Um, So that's a, and when we we experience the fear of the Lord, when that gift of faith has been given to us, then we can grow in comprehension of God's works of creation, provision, sustaining, providential work. It's only through that lens that we can see it. And then we can see not only our calling in life, but we see how we are called to appreciate and extract from God's work of life that we get a perspective like Stephen Charnock had. Stephen Charnock, you're probably familiar with, wrote this big, big uh, volume of existence and attributes of God. I love this quote. All things in the world, one way or another, center in the usefulness for man, some to feed him, some to clothe him, some to delight him, some to instruct him, some to exercise his, uh, the original says, his wit. I put in there intelligence. And others, his strength. That's how we should see things in life, right? 
That's how we should approach our science. We should be, in, in that sense, all believers are scientists, right? God has revealed himself in his works, in all aspects of these works that we've talked about. Uh, and we are to be delighting in those works, and those works are to be studied, as the psalmist in Psalm 111 says. Uh, I tell you what, I'm going to, because I want to leave a, a little bit of uh, time for questions. Yeah, I'll just, uh, I've already summarized this. There's no conflict. There's no conflict between science and the Bible, true science. The conflict is in the presupposition. There, there is, this is the biblical worldview, the last bullet here on this chart. There's a beautiful, discernible, and I had it fixed. And, and, and uh, the laws of nature show that it's fixed in time, in time, as long as time is unfolding, and useful. It's useful to us. Order in the universe, accessible to the mind of created man who bears the image of the rational creator and endowed with intelligence. We're equipped and commissioned to seek out that order and to know our creator and to make him known through the study of his works. I'll stop there because um, I want to give you maybe some time for a couple of questions. This is going to be a little bit of a challenge, but I, I do want to hear, hear, I've got a question right here. The uh, question is the issue of contingency, searching things out. How does it relate in comparison with Newton and Einstein? When Newton clearly was a believer, Einstein, I think it's pretty clear, probably wasn't uh, a believer. Uh, Although, and, and this is true, it's part of God's common grace. A lot of science is driven by presuppositions that we would agree with. And if you read some of the quotes of Einstein, um, he acknowledged in intelligence a rational force behind the existence of all things. So he saw that. He just perhaps wasn't granted the grace of the fear of the Lord, as we talked about. So I think he would agree with the contingency there. He just couldn't explain it. Um, in fact, uh, it's related to the Scripture as well, right? When in the Gospel of John... How does John start out with? In the beginning was the logos. I love the use of that word. John used the word. It was the word, the word of God, right? The word of God is Jesus Christ. He's eternal. And through him, all things are made. Um, the, and he used that word, and it, it had a different impact on two primary audiences. On the Jewish ear, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. They heard that throughout their existence, right? The word of the Lord came to so logos, the word, uh, had that meaning uh, to the Jewish mind. To the Greek mind, it had a little bit different meaning, and I would contend it's related to Einstein's perspective. In the Greek mind, logos had this idea of a rationality behind the existence of all things. There was an intelligence. There was a, uh, a, a, an impersonal, rational force that was the cause of all things, but it was out of our reach. Um, it was there, presumably, but we can't explain it. We can't uh, uh, access it. But it is the reason 
uh, for everything that we can see. So John, when he wrote that, he was writing to the Greek mind too. This rational force that you know is there has now revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so I think Einstein had that same sense. Yeah, Jeremy. Absolutely. Is it legitimate? So that, I mean, a question can be brought in. Is, is the scientific endeavor legitimate? And I would say absolutely. Um, God has provisioned his creation. And what's inherent in the word provision and the meaning of provision? It provides us something. And as Charnick wrote, the last quote I wrote from Charnick there, uh, all of these things have been provided for us and provided to us. Um, it, it, and it's related to the concept of work, the biblical concept of work. It re- goes back to the garden before the fall. Work is good, right? God provisioned the garden for the good of his created beings who bear his image. Um, now, it's compromised now. It's, uh, it's, um, we, we see failure and toil, and we also see the manifestation of evil with the development of technology because of the fall. But in essence, the work of scientific endeavor is good and, 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 and it, a component of the dominion mandate, as I talked about earlier. So, yeah, absolutely, I see it as good. Again, it can, it's not neutral morally, right? So if scientific endeavor is not guided by the moral law of God, then we see the manifestation of evil in its use. Yes. Well, I would turn it around and challenge him. Show me the evidence that shows it's billions of years old. Uh, the only reason that uh, so many have concluded it's billions of years, one, they hear it from the world, the scientific world out there, um, but because of the presupposition going in that everything has to be explained naturally. So the existence of everything is by chance over time, and we can't explain it in 100 million years. We can't explain it in a billion years. So let's just stretch out the probability uh, to longer periods of time. So I would turn that around. Uh, the history, you know, that's all prehistoric. And you, we all experienced in school, we have history and we have prehistoric times. The whole concept of prehistory is kind of a misnomer too. It presumes that everything existed forever and evolved to where it is now. We just don't have a record of it. We're, we're given a record of it. Uh, it's in the scripture. It's uh, the record of God's creative work. Uh, so I would turn it around. Uh, the evidence that we have uh, uh, 
shows that it has been revealed to us that God created all things, right? According to Genesis 1 and affirmed throughout Scripture all the way to Revelation. You mentioned biology. I didn't touch it on it at all, but it is also fascinating. Everything uh, uh, that's being discovered in biology uh, refutes everything uh, in the presuppositions that led to evolution and, and related things. Life is not simple at the cellular level. DNA is billions of bits of information, intelligence, coded. It's a control system that gets turned on and off based on the environment that the organism is is in. Uh, so the genes get turned on and off based on environmental. It's coded into the organism by the creative work of God. That's another whole talk, right? Let's see, a couple more. Michelle. The question has to do with other astronauts that uh, how do they explain their worldview, basically that, you know, say a non-Christian worldview. Um, It's no different up there than it is here. We're still, we're an assortment of human beings up there in the field. Uh, There are are other believers in the ranks of of Americans anyway. Um, I would say among uh, Russian cosmonauts, there are a few practicing Orthodox. Um, Most of them are agnostic. There might be a few that would call themselves atheists. Uh, but it's, so it's, it's the same as here, same as experience in here. Some people we can enter into conversation with and have the, uh, um, an objective philosophical discussion to some degree, to one degree or another. Others want to avoid it. I've had, you know, I've had people, when they see my, me in front of my Bible on the space station, they, they head to another module. Um, uh, but, but that's okay, right? Uh, so it's no different up there than it is here. We, you know, we're, it's a reminder that we're just called to be a witness, right? And we want to be a faithful witness. And we don't want to detract from the witness. We want, don't want to be a negative witness. And we all impact people around us. Everyone, everybody in here impacts people around you far more than you ever realize and will realize this side of eternity. And that needs to be on our mind all the time. What kind of a witness have I, am I given to that person who's observing me from afar, maybe observing me periodically over a long period of time that I will never meet personally or have limited interaction with? We're all a witness. Yes, sir. Question, what is it like to, uh, in, in my last three flights were about six months each on the space station, what's it like to come back and then experience, you called the crushing weight of gravity, which is a good description. I call it the relentless force of gravity. It is, uh, it is shocking initially. In fact, it's harder to come back than it is to go there in terms of adaptation. Um, you're, just, you're very clumsy and you lose things all the time when you get there and whatnot. When you come back, Six months, your vestibular system hasn't been working because that requires gravity to have that inner ear, the fluid in the inner ear sense of up and down or whatnot. We don't have that, so the brain has turned that off. Um, We exercise every day up there to maintain our strength, overall strength, in preparation for return to Earth. Um, But you can't exercise every muscle up there. 
that we take for granted and use just to function here. So it's a, it's a, it's a huge shock. You have no sense of balance when you first come back. Um, so you can't stand up without visual cues. You're, you're looking and you're working really hard to maintain your balance because you have no sense of vestibular balance. So you can't close your eyes. When you take a shower, you do it on your hands and knees because if the water flows into your face and you close your eyes, you're going to do a face plant into the plumbing. Um, now that improves fairly rapidly, even in the first hours. Um, uh, but I would say you have a vestibular awareness over about a week to 10 days. It takes about six weeks to get back your full muscle uh, strength, get over the soreness, get back your flexibility and coordination. Yeah. No, it's uh, we take gravity for granted in many different ways. <laughs> one, one final question, because I, I, we need to end at, at half past the hour, right? Yeah. <laughs> The question has to do with distant light. Um, you know, the, and, and this question comes up all the time. And even young earth scientists, I think, have a, oftentimes have a hard time answering it, or they will admit they don't know the answer. To me, I, I mean, I'm not a scientist and certainly not an astronomer, but to me, it's, it's relatively simple. You know, the, 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 the question has to do with you got, let's say you have a star that's uh, 100 million light years away. Well, how do you explain the fact that light travels at 186,000 miles a second? So therefore, it would take millions of years for the light from the star to get to us on Earth. And that's, uh, that's, the, that's the question, right? The essence of your question. The, the question presumes that like these light bulbs, we uh, activate them with a switch and the, the light starts there at the filament and then travels to us and it takes time to do that. I say, why assume it worked that way? Why assume that when God created the stars, and oh, by the way, we don't have a lot of detail. In Genesis 1, it says, and the stars, right? That, that's it. Uh, why do we assume that he created the star there in its local place and then flipped a switch to turn the light on so that the light could begin to travel. Why couldn't he create it in its entirety, in its entire manifestation, which is the star itself and the light uh, throughout its, um, its range? And by the way, we don't know how big the range is because the closer we are, the farther we look through technology, the more we see, right? So... Um, why couldn't he just create it in its array of light? That, that, to me, that's a simple answer. Um, we need to remember, and this has to do with the authority of science. The authority of science manifests itself as kind of separate from the Scripture, right? And uh, with a, an authority of presuppositions, with the authority that, okay, th th this is presented as fact, therefore it has to be fact. But it's not in parallel with the Scripture. It's not on par with the Scripture. This is our true source, right, from which we draw all things. So, and the Scripture is very clear in the creation account. So to me, it's not an issue, but we need to remember that. Our science needs to be 
drawn in its presuppositions from the Scripture, just as those scientists did that we talked about in the age of science, the scientific revolution. It's only in that way that we can be faithful in our witness to the Lord who has granted us the fear of Him, who has granted us faith in Jesus Christ. And only by that can we, um, uh, can we work out our little piece of scientific endeavor, of subduing God's creative work. Anyway, we, I want to honor the time. I know we're doing a big switch here shortly between here and the worship center. Let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, opportunity that we have to consider these big questions, these big issues, these issues of worldview, these issues of origins, the issues of your providential work in our lives as we seek to understand the provisioning of your work uh, in so many different ways, Lord, and to address the challenges that come from outside the church to undermine the authority of Scripture. Lord, equip us uh, with the wisdom and knowledge and understanding that only you can grant by grace so that we can be faithful to your word, so that we can grow in our witness uh, to those around us, that, so that we can grow in our ability to give an answer uh, to those that question why we believe what we believe, uh, that we can be faithful in life, uh, not only in our Christian walk, not only in our walk within the body of Christ, but be, to be a faithful witness to those around us and to, um, to equip and strengthen those that are in the faith that are out there, particularly the young people in the academic world, um, in the world of various careers with the challenges all around, in the popular world, Lord, with the the voices that want to come up against uh, the truth. Equip us, Lord, that we can be faithful to answer those challenges uh, and that Christ be glorified, who is the creator of all things and who upholds all things by the word of his power for his eternal purpose. In his name we pray, amen.